the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Sharon Haughty Miller will be my guest. She's the author of Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. She's joining us this hour. And in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with uh, Myron Ebel. He's the director of the Center for Energy and Environment at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. They've compiled 50 years of climate disaster predictions that have failed to materialize. We'll tell you more about that when he joins us. First, to look at some of the day's headlines. The House Judiciary Committee's first hearing as part of its Trump impeachment investigation descended into chaos yesterday as Democrats clashed with a combative Corey Lewandowski as he refused to answer many of their questions. In an interview uh, with uh, Fox News' Martha McCallum on the story, the former Trump campaign manager slammed the hearing as a a disservice to the American people. What we know is that the far left wing of the Democratic Party has has to have these hearings to protect themselves in their congressional districts from further left progressives who want to take them out in the primary races, he said, this is all politics, end quote. Well, after five hours of testimony before lawmakers, Representative Jerry Nadler and chairman of the House Judiciary Committee uh, told Lewandowski his behavior in the hearing room had been completely unacceptable and said holding him in contempt is certainly under consideration. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's political future was in doubt on Wednesday as Israel's two main political parties were deadlocked after an unprecedented repeat election. Elections seeming political kingmaker Avigdor Lieberman said he'll insist upon a secular unity government between Netanyahu's Likud and Benny Gantz's blue and white parties, who, based on partial results, are currently tied at 32 seats each out of the 120 in parliament. The 69-year-old Netanyahu, the longest-serving leader in Israeli history, was seeking a fifth term in office but faced a stiff challenge from Gantz. Officials' uh, results uh, were not expected until sometime today, and we still haven't seen a final on that. And the race was still too close to call. Ed Buck, the California Democratic mega donor, was arrested on Tuesday and charged with operating a drug house after a third man reportedly suffered an overdose inside his West Hollywood home last week and survived. Buck was charged with three counts of battery and is accused of injecting the alleged third victim with methamphetamine on September 11th, the Los Angeles Times reported. He has faced public scrutiny after two black men died from overdoses 18 months apart inside his home. Buck was not charged in those cases. President Trump sent liberal California activists into a tizzy on Tuesday as he executed a lunch, dinner, breakfast, lunch fundraising blitz expected to scoop up about $15 million from wealthy Republicans in the state in the span of just two days. The president's uh, undeterred push westward came a day after he headlined a fiery rally in New Mexico, long a uh, reliably liberal state that the Trump campaign has hoped to turn red in 2020. Trump has been looking to find the next Wisconsin or Michigan states that Democrats generally have won in presidential elections, but that could surprise 
uh, under certain conditions, as they did in 2016. Also on the Trump team's shortlist is the new strategy, Nevada, New Hampshire, and Minnesota. Trump's West Coast fundraising effort comes as the Republican National Committee is expected to announce this week that it raised a record-setting $23.5 million in August and had $53.8 million cash on hand as of the end of that month, signaling growing GOP momentum heading into the 2020 election. And the number and rate of abortions across the United States have dropped to their lowest level since the procedure became legal nationwide back in 1973, according to figures released today. The report from the Guttmacher Institute, a research group that supports abortion rights, counted 862,000 abortions in the U.S. in 2017. That's down from 960 and rather 926,000 tallied in the group's previous report from 2014 and from just over 1 million counted in 2011. The new report illustrates that abortion is decreasing in all parts of the country, whether in Republican-controlled states seeking to restrict abortion access or in Democratic-run states protecting abortion rights. Between 2011 and 2017, abortion rates increased in only five states and the District of Columbia. President Trump today named the State Department's hostage envoy Robert C. O'Brien as his fourth national security advisor, replacing John Bolton, who was ousted from the administration last week rather abruptly. O'Brien joined the administration in May of 2018 and serves as the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs at the State Department. O'Brien, who served under Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, led the U.S. government's diplomatic efforts on overseas hostage-related matters, working closely with families of American hostages, as well as working with the administration on developing and implementing hostage recovery policy and strategy. We'll see how long he stays in that position this time. Senator Bernie Sanders has released an ambitious housing plan that stays true to the candidate's um, interventionalist brand of democratic socialism. In a speech to trade union members in Las Vegas, Nevada on Saturday, Sanders laid out his vision for tackling high housing costs, homelessness and gentrification through a mix of nationwide rent control, increased federal spending on housing vouchers and public housing construction and higher taxes on the wealthy, which is so often redefined downward. The Justice Department filed a civil lawsuit Tuesday against former National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden for violating his nondisclosure agreement with the CIA and the NSA by writing a new book about his leaks. The filing alleged that Snowden violated his nondisclosure agreements by failing to submit his manuscript to the agencies for pre-publication review, as is a standard process for former employees and contractors of the agencies. The Department of Justice aims to ensure that no funds are transferred to Snowden or at his direction while the court is resolving the United States claim. Snowden is now pressing to be allowed to return home. The free speech rights of two Christian artists who make wedding invitations were violated by an anti-discrimination ordinance in Phoenix. That makes it illegal to refuse service to same-sex couples for religious reasons, the Arizona Supreme Court ruled on Monday. The 4-3 to decision reversed lower court rulings favoring the city. And Merriam-Webster announced Tuesday that it has added the non-binary pronoun they to its dictionary. The non-binary pronoun is now listed as one of four definitions of the word by the online dictionary company. Merriam-Webster defines they as used to refer to a single individual whose gender identity is non-binary. Some shortcuts. Once you see Trump as history's greatest nightmare, every action taken in opposition to him and those allied with him is justified. This kind of thinking is how you get people trying to shoot up a baseball field full of Republican congressmen. 
Quote from Jim Garrigy. And former DNC chief Donna Brazil says, for the record, do you know that I get in trouble when I don't say the president is racist? And by the way, she has a column out now saying why she refuses to refer to him as such. And Senator Kamala Harris, a quote, someone should investigate Brett Kavanaugh because the fact that something has not been proven, it doesn't mean it didn't occur. Right. Well, proof is generally required before. Anyway, uh, you get a tax break for a racehorse. Why? On earth, couldn't we provide an $8,000 tax credit for everybody who has child care costs? It would put 720 million women back in the workforce. A quote from former Vice President Joe Biden. And by the way, there are only about 320 million total people in the United States. So 720 million women, that's quite a feat. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after four. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Sharon Hode Miller. She is the author of Nice, Hmm, Why We Love to Be Liked, and How God Calls Us to More. That's coming up shortly. Here's an interesting quote you might be able to unravel, interpret. Hmm. Matt Walsh. And last, I am changing my pronouns to we, us, our. You see, I, or rather we, identify not just as myself, but as all selves. We identify as me, but also you and everyone else. You might protest that you are not me, to which we would agree. You are not me because there is no me. You are us. We are you. Yours is ours. This isn't difficult to understand. Actual quote, by the way. Anyway, on this day in history, on September 18th, 1793, President George Washington lays the cornerstone of the U.S. Capitol. On this day in history, 1850, Congress passes the Fugitive Slave Act, which creates a force of federal commissioners charged with returning escaped slaves to their owners. God help us. And on this day in history, 1947, the National Security Act, which creates a national military establishment and the position of Secretary of Defense, goes into effect. On this day in history, 1970, Jimi Hendrix dies in London. He was only 27. On this day in history, 1975, newspaper heiress Patricia Hearst is captured by the FBI in San Francisco, 19 months after being kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. I remember as a relatively young person trying to figure that whole thing out and wondering what the Symbionese Liberation Army might be. Well, President Trump today named the the State Department's hostage envoy Robert C. O'Brien as his fourth national security advisor, replacing John Bolton, who was ousted from the administration last week. I am pleased to announce that I will name Robert C. O'Brien, currently serving as the very successful special presidential envoy for hostage affairs at the State Department, as our new national security advisor. I have worked long and hard with Robert. He will be he will do a good job. The president tweeted this morning. He appointed uh, the appointment rather is not subject to Senate uh, confirmation. O'Brien joined the administration in May of 2018 and serves as the special presidential envoy. He uh, served under Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, led the U.S. government's diplomatic efforts on overseas hostage related matters, working closely with families of American hostages, as well as working with the administration on developing and implementing uh, hostage recovery policy and strategy. Most recently, O'Brien was involved in the high profile arrest of American rapper ASAP Rocky. Uh, Over the summer, O'Brien traveled to Sweden to monitor court proceedings after the rapper pled not guilty to assault after a street fight that landed him in jail in Stockholm. He was released in August. O'Brien also served during the Obama administration as co-chairman of the Senate 
uh, rather the State Department's public-private partnership for justice reform in Afghanistan. He will be the president's fourth national security advisor. O'Brien's appointment comes just days after the president announced that he was um, he had fired uh, Mr. Bolton, whom O'Brien worked with in 2005 when he served as U.S. representative at the United Nations during former President George W. Bush's administration. I informed John Bolton last night that his services no longer needed at the White House, the president tweeted. I disagreed strongly with many of his suggestions, as did others in the administration, and therefore I asked John for his resignation, which was given to me this morning. I thank John very much for his service. I will be naming a new national security advisor next week, which, of course, is this week. Well, Bolton, as you might recall, swiftly challenged the president's version of events, saying he offered to resign. Uh, The two had well-known disagreements on a range of hot-button national security issues, perhaps most significantly on plans to withdraw or at least draw down troops in Afghanistan. In a move um, President Trump said will reduce car prices but will also anger environmental groups, the administration is revoking California's authority to set strict fuel economy standards. The president announced the move today, saying the decision was made in order to produce far less expensive cars for the consumer while making cars safer at the same time. This will lead to more production because of this pricing and safety advantage and also due to the fact that older, highly polluting cars will be replaced by new, extremely environmentally friendly cars, the president tweeted this morning. California's authority is set it uh, rather um, to set its own emission standards tougher than the federal government's goes back to a waiver issued by Congress during passage of the Clean Air Act back in 1970. The state has long pushed automakers to adopt more fuel-efficient passenger vehicles that emit less p- pollution. The dozen states and the District of Columbia also follow California's fuel economy standards. The Trump administration's decision revokes that waiver, touching off what is sure to be another high-profile legal fight with the Golden State. In anticipation of the move, California's attorney general said uh, Tuesday that the administration's actions will hurt both U.S. automakers and American families. He said California would fight the administration in federal court. And President Donald Trump's former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, set the tone early on Tuesday during what House Democrats billed as a debut impeachment hearing. I will be as sincere in my answers as this committee is in its questions, Lewandowski said toward the end of his opening statement. It turned out that Lewandowski, who already had testified to Congress three times and met extensively with special counsel Robert Mueller in investigation, had less to say. The White House invoked executive privilege so that Lewandowski would say no more about his conversations with the president than was contained in Mueller's final report or had been publicly reported already. This outraged House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler. Um, The special counsel's probe determined that neither Trump nor anyone in his campaign conspired with Russian entities to interfere with the 2016 presidential election. However, many Democrats say that they want to impeach the president for obstruction of justice. Mueller didn't make a final determination on whether Trump obstructed his investigation. One of 10 examples, possibly obstruction in his report, however, said that Trump asked Lewandowski to deliver a a message to then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, which he failed to do, but was asking him to limit the probe only to how to prevent Russian meddling in future elections. Lewandowski never delivered the message to Sessions, the report said. Well, unlike in past impeachment hearings, such as those targeting President Andrew Jackson, Richard Nixon, Bill Clinton, the House has not approved a formal impeachment inquiry. However, Nadler said his committee is conducting impeachment proceedings that precede. This is the first time that this action has been taken without a vote uh, first. Anyway, there were some 
uh, key moments. Uh, neither Nadler nor Lewandowski had the Mueller report handy at the hearing, but Mr. Lewandowski insisted on uh, the reference um, in the report that was being asked about by members of the committee. Also, harassment of the president, Lewandowski, who turns 46 on Wednesday, delivered a stern opening statement about what he said was lawmakers wasting time and money to push a non-existent scandal, saying as the special counsel determined there was no conspiracy or collusion between the Trump campaign and any foreign government, either on my watch or afterwards. He went on from there. He also invoked Gump representative or he was um, invoked by a member representative steve cohen known for gimmicks and theatrics and questioning witnesses invoked the oscar-winning 1994 film forrest gump about a man played by tom hanks who manages to be in the middle of nearly every historic situation during his lifetime could it be that trump asked you to get the message to sessions because he thought that you would do whatever he thought um, uh, he'd asked, even if it was illegal or immoral. Before Lewandowski responded, Cohen went on to quote news articles that refer to him as an enforcer and a right-hand man for the president. Well, Cohen also brought up that Lewandowski previously worked for Representative Bob Ney of Ohio, who was convicted in 2007 on corruption charges. You are now involved in this, Cohen said. Either you are willing to break the law for politics and Mr. Trump, or you're some kind of Forrest Gump relating to corruption. Did the president pick you as his enforcer because he thought you would play whatever role you wanted? Lewandowski answered, that wouldn't be a question. That would be a question for the president, Congressman. And then packaging and product, Representative Doug Collins, the committee's ranking member, said that Russia's story pushed by the Democrats fell apart with delivery of the Mueller report. They then had to move to other anti-Trump topics, in this case, seeking impeachment for obstruction of justice. I've never seen a majority so amazed with packaging in my lifetime, he said. You know why? Because they can't sell what's inside. They can't sell the product, so they just keep packaging it differently. Um, aid from uh, no impeachment offenses, Collins said. Democrats also don't have math on their side. It was a rather fiery exchange. Well, the feds, uh, the Fed rather, has approved a quarter point rate cut, but it's divided on further action this year. The central bank announced it's uh, taking down its benchmark overnight lending rate to a target range of 1.75 percent to 2 percent. According to the Fed's dot plot of individual expectations, five members thought the uh, they should have uh, held its previous range of 2% to 2.25%. Five approved of a 25 base point uh, cut, but keeping rates there through the rest of the year. The, the committee again cites the implications of global developments for the economic outlook, as well as muted inflation pressures as the primary rationale for Wednesday's cut. Again, the Federal Reserve approved a much-anticipated quarter-point interest rate cut Wednesday, but offered few indications that further reductions are ahead. We're going to take a break here in a moment. When we return, we're going to talk about the book, Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. Sharon Hode Miller will be my guest, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in a society that places enormous value on being, well, nice, the church has deigned niceness a virtue and ultimately allowed it to become an idol. So says my next guest. In place of real Christian or Christ-like courage, kindness, conviction, and discipleship, many people fall into the traps of people-pleasing. 
popularity contests, and manufacture joy in exchange for likability. Nice, the book we're going to be talking about, uh, the subtitle of which is Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More, challenges our understanding of false virtue, a perfect facade, pleasantries, and the preservation of the status quo. As many soften stances in order to avoid giving offense, the Bible calls Christ followers to be a firmly rooted position of loving conviction. Christians can no longer afford to serve niceness if we seek to serve Christ. We'll give the author an opportunity to explain what that means. With biblical wisdom, she does that in the book, Surprising Insight, Deep Conviction. The book helps readers identify common forms of nice faith and how they manifest in our lives, how to start practicing true kindness, honesty, courage, and joy, and develop a deeper, sturdier faith that can withstand life's storms and even flourish. Well, it's a great book, and joining us is Sharon Hody Miller. She leads Bright City Church in Durham, North Carolina, alongside her husband, Ike. In addition to earning her Ph.D., she has blogged with SheWorships.com for nearly 10 years, making God's Word accessible to women everywhere. She's the author of Free to Be Me, Why Life is Better When It's Not About You. She's been a regular contributor to Propel. She reads Truth and Christianity Today and has written for Irrelevant, Encourage, and many other publications and blogs. Once again, today we're talking about her latest book, Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. Thank you so much for, um, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, it's great to be with you. Well, let's start by just defining what you mean by nice, because I think if you haven't read the book, if you haven't given this some consideration, this might seem sort of an odd concept. We shouldn't be nice. But explain what you mean by that and why it's important for us to consider whether or not we've made being nice an idol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, first of all, the description you just gave of the book was probably the most comprehensive, great description of anyone else. <laughs> did a really great job. Thank you. I was like, I don't even need to do the interview. She <laughs> just covered it all. <laughs> um, but yeah, I so just to give people a little bit of a you know, window into just where the idea for this book came from, In my first book, Free of Me, I had in the opening chapter, I had probably just a paragraph where I was reflecting on my upbringing as in a Christian home. And I was raised in the church. I was a really, really good kid. I was a rule follower. I was an achiever. I was a people pleaser, all of that. I was a really nice Christian girl. And just in like a couple of sentences, I reflected on that and I could see that At the time, I would have said I did all those things for Jesus, but in hindsight, I could tell I was also doing it because it was really, really beneficial to me. It it got me a lot. It got me a lot of affirmation, a lot of praise, a lot of approval from all the adults in my life. And what I could see in hindsight is that my, my motives were really, really muddy. I wasn't sure if I was because of Christ or because it was just advantageous to me. So I I wrote that in just a little paragraph in Free of Me. And I didn't intend to write any more, but that idea, it continued to just haunt me and follow me. And I think the reason why is I realized I hadn't left it behind me. It wasn't just part of my childhood. It really followed me into adulthood, and it had also followed me into to ministry, where I would, instead of being truthful, 
you know, in a relationship or in, in a, you know, working situation, instead of being honest, I would simply default to being nice in ministry. Instead of saying maybe something that was really hard, I would be tempted to just stay, you know, stick with nice. And so I was noticing this this in myself again and again and again and, and how easy it was to settle for that because it seems it looks so much like the real thing. You know, you can mm-hmm. get away with that and still look Christian. And so I, I saw this in myself, but I also noticed it was it was producing some really bad fruit in my life. And that's when I realized I need to to look more closely at this. You know, it's interesting. Niceness, as you point out in, I think it's in the introduction, is sort of an innocuous thing. But when it replaces what we should be doing, then it can be a very Mm -hmm. dangerous thing for us and uh, for others. Um, You write that my devotion to niceness has won me a lot of acceptance and praise, but it has also inhibited my courage, fed my self-righteousness, encouraged my inauthenticity and produced in me a flimsy sweetness that easily gives way to disdain. Ouch, that sounds eerily familiar um, because (laughs) niceness is a virtue that we have elevated to a place that uh, we probably should not. Yeah, you know, the word niceness, you asked earlier, what do I mean by nice? And the word nice itself just means pleasant or agreeable. That's, you know, just a basic dictionary definition of it. And those things are not in and of themselves bad or wrong. But when they become your compass, and when they kind of become, like you said, your your primary social virtue, like how you navigate relationships and also how you measure other people, that becomes more of a problem. And one of the reasons why it's a problem is we don't see it anywhere in Scripture that this is elevated to the level of something we should aspire to. Mm-hmm. You know, niceness is not a, a fruit of the Spirit. And one of the ways that I parsed out the difference between those two things, you know, what is the difference between being nice and being kind or being nice and being loving, being nice or being gentle? And what we see is that the fruit of the spirit are foundationally about, they're, they're kind of oriented towards two things, which is God and others, you know, just like the two, the two great commandments, loving God and loving others. Everything in the Christian life is oriented towards those two things. Niceness, however, it has the appearance of being about others, but it is really about you. Mm. And one of the ways that you can tell the difference is how you respond when someone doesn't reciprocate. So if you are nice to somebody and then they are rude in response, how do you respond? Because the nice person, if what you're doing is simply being nice and they don't kind of play along, (laughs) so to speak, Oftentimes, we're kind of like, how good day, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I was so nice to them, you know, but but kindness, for instance, kindness is about really loving the other person. It's not about eliciting a certain response. It's, you know, driven by Jesus's kindness, which which counted the cost. You know, Jesus wasn't kind simply because of what it got him. You know, Jesus gave up a lot, but he was kind out of, out of love for us. And so that's a really crucial distinction when we're thinking about the difference between niceness and other fruit of the Spirit. You make the point that niceness is not just a social skill, but a competing priority in our lives. And when we mm-hmm. when we hold it up against the fruit of the Spirit, as you have just listed a few of them, 
it, it comes out, it withers and doesn't really stand up to that kind of scrutiny because mm-hmm. it, it tends to cover things that should be exposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, an- another thing, just thinking through the difference between niceness and something like kindness, there was a, an author who was really helpful to me named uh, Barry Corey. I think that's his name. I hope I'm not switching his name. But he has a book called Love Kindness, and he describes niceness as having soft edges in a kind of a squishy core. And then he describes harshness as having hard edges in a a firm core. And then kindness is kind of a blend of the two. It has those soft, kindness has the soft edges of, you know, gentleness and, and love and patience. But it also has a firm core, you know, unlike niceness, niceness just caves, you know, it's, it hmm. doesn't have conviction, but kindness is, is driven by that conviction. It has a spine. And so when we're facing, you know, having to say something honest and hard, and, you know, I think when we're talking about being Christian, sometimes we're thinking of, you know, saying hard truths into the world, but, but honestly, I think where this probably plays out a lot more is in interpersonal relationships where maybe you have a family member who you've noticed is drinking too much, or maybe you have a coworker who is becoming flirtatious with another coworker who's married. And in those situations, are you willing to say the hard thing that is true Or are you just going to be nice? Nice. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Sharon Hody Miller. She is a Ph.D. and the author of Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Dr. Sharon Hode Miller. She is the author of Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. In it, she writes, I cannot follow Jesus and nice, not equally, because following Jesus means following a man who spoke hard and confusing truths, who was honest with his disciples, even when it hurt, who condemned the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and turned over tables in the temple. Jesus was a man who went face to face with the devil himself and died on a cross rather than succumb to the status quo. Jesus was loving. He was gracious. He was forgiving. He was kind, but he was not nice. He was a man who would leave the 99 sheep to rescue the one, but he was also totally unafraid of offending people. Let me ask you, um, you mentioned the concept of a sentimental Jesus. How does sentiment limit our vision of Christ in his fullness and um, prevent us from stepping away from being nice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh... I the arc of the the book, just to give people a sense of it, is the first half I look at what are the bad fruits of niceness. As I mentioned earlier, niceness looks a lot like what we are called to as Christians. And so I think lots of times we just settle for this appearance of mm-hmm. goodness instead of the reality of it. And the way that we can tell the truth, tell the difference, is that Jesus gives us this wonderful metaphor of saying you can know a tree just by looking at its fruit. And I thought this is this is the this is the answer. And so in the first half of the book, I look at okay, what are the bad fruits of niceness? And I look at really obvious ones, which we've kind of already talked about, like inauthenticity, where instead of being truthful, instead of being honest, you are nice. I looked at cowardice. Kind of Thing is, is bold or hard, you are nice. 
But one of the fruits that I look at that, that might be a little bit more unexpected is sentimentality, where we are, I would say, participating in this very nice, very feel-good faith. And that's what sentimental faith is. It's a very feeling-driven faith. And so you are, a lot of what you, how you practice your faith is bound up in the things that make you feel really good. And this plays out in a lot of different ways. It can be, you know, you only read books that are just kind of positive and inspiring. You only listen to voices that are positive and inspiring. It, it, that is a, a form of sentimentality. But it also plays out in nostalgia. It plays out in traditions where, you know, this is how we've always celebrated Christmas and it has nothing to do with the Bible, but we are like married to this tradition (laughs) (laughs) because it's important to us and how, you know, those things aren't, aren't necessarily wrong, but sometimes what happens is we start to, our motives get a little bit confused where we associate what feels good with being right and being true. And what we see in the gospel, what we see in the story of Christ is that following him is not always going to feel good. And keeping that distinction is really important for guarding the integrity of our faith. Yeah, yeah. Uh, niceness can disguise and mask a lot of things, but you write about niceness disguising aggression. Um, how does this show up in the church or in the workplace or in our family and our relationships with others? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I talk about it. It it disguises aggression whenever we are just simply being dishonest. You know, instead of being honest about, you know, how you really feel about something, how you are simply nice, but then you go behind their back <laughs> and say how you really feel to everyone around them. You know, that kind of a thing. But where what I really dig into is also how niceness covers up corruption. And that that chapter, the the bad fruit of corruption, is a little bit different than all the other fruit that I look at. And the way that it's different is with with all the other chapters, all the other fruit I look at, I kind of look at how do we use niceness to cover up our own sin, basically. How do we use niceness to, you know, put on a mask to our lives? But there's another way that niceness plays out in our lives where we will basically forgive corruption, we will forgive a lapse in ethics or in morality in other people if they are nice to us. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of stories like that right now. One that I talk about in the book and that has been in the, the news is the USA gymnastics story with Dr. Larry Nasser, who it turned out abused hundreds of, of young girls. And the reason he was able to get away with this is that he was a a nice doctor. He was an upstanding doctor with a great reputation. And so these these girls would go to their parents even. They would go to their, their coaches and say, this is happening. And they were not believed because of this doctor and his, his nice reputation. And I think that that story is really powerful for us as Christians because it gets to the heart of why discernment is so important. This is not simply about us being duped or fooled by niceness. This is about our call as the church and as the people of God 
to defend the vulnerable, just as Jesus did. And we cannot do that if we are willing to overlook major problems simply because somebody is nice to us, because it's you know beneficial for us to simply go along with the status quo. So that's a slightly different angle to look at it, but really, really important. Mm, mm. Um, you share an, your analogy about the shallows and the depths of the ocean and our study of Scripture as we're attempting mm-hmm. to bear the fruit of the Spirit as a, a, mm-hmm. up against niceness. Uh, talk a bit about mm-hmm. this, the, the depths of the ocean. Yeah, so that, I believe that was in the second half of the book. So Mm -hmm. the first half, I look at these bad fruit, and the second half, I I look at, okay, how do we cultivate a better tree? Because lots of times we say, don't be this, be that. You know, don't bear bad fruit, bear fruit of the Spirit. And I realized, hold on a second, we're missing some steps here. Because, you know, an apple farmer doesn't go to a sick apple tree and shout at it, stop bearing bad fruit, bear better fruit. (laughs) You know, he cultivates a better tree. And Jesus uses this metaphor because there's spiritual truth in it that we need to cultivate these fruit in ourselves. And one of the ways that, that we cultivate better fruit is through the study of God's word. And what's happening too often is we are kind of approaching God's word in a very, very shallow way. And that gets to what you're talking about with the shallows versus the depths, where I think a lot of us are being discipled almost by social media, where you get on Instagram and you read, you know, an encouraging verse, or maybe you get like an email that that has, you know, an encouraging devotion or something like that. And once again, like, these are not bad things. But if that is the, the substance of your faith, it's a lot like standing on a seashore. If you go to, you know, the Caribbean or something and you stand on the seashore, you know what? The seashore is gorgeous. It is absolutely beautiful. But if you never step into the waves and dive in, there's a whole ocean that awaits you. And I think that that is really how a lot of us are studying scripture, is we're just standing in the shallows, and the shallows are are beautiful. They have their own beauty. But we're not diving into the depths and the depths and the depths of God's word. And because of that, our faith isn't really going much deeper either, and we're not cultivating something deeper as a result. There's so much more in your book. I wish we had time to talk about it, but I would certainly recommend our listeners read the book. It's titled Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. Just discovering what that more looks like is inspiring. Thank you so much for talking with us today and for your book. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Again, Sharon Hode-Miller, Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. The book is published by Baker. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show about seven minutes after five o'clock. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Later this hour, we'll talk with Myron Ebel. He is the director of the Center for Energy and Environment at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, on 50 years of climate disaster predictions that have failed to materialize this on the eve of an important U.N. meeting that's taking place next week. 
Well, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo described the weekend bombing in Saudi oil facilities as an act of war and called it an Iranian attack on one of the world's largest oil processing facilities. Speaking from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia on Wednesday, he said that even if the fraudulent claims of responsibility by the Yemen Houthi rebels were true, it doesn't change the fingerprints of the Ayatollah as having uh, put at risk the global energy supply. Well, his comments come hours after the president tweeted that he had ordered Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin to substantially increase sanctions on Iran with escalating tensions between the two countries. Earlier this week, the president said it was looking like Iran was responsible for the bombing, but didn't publicly accuse Tehran of the attack. Um, Iran, who has repeatedly denied involvement in the bombings, warned Wednesday that it would immediately retaliate against the United States if Tehran is targeted over a crippling weekend attack on Saudi oil facilities. Well, the threat, which was uh, sent via the Swiss embassy in Tehran, also condemned previous remarks made by Secretary Pompeo and other high-ranking U.S. officials, suggesting Iran was behind the move. Iran's response will be prompt and strong, and it may include broader areas than the source attacks. Uh, source of attacks. Tehran's far news agency added that any response would be rapid and crushing. Meanwhile, Saudi officials alleged on Wednesday that Iranian cruise missiles and drones were behind the attack on Sunday, having collected materials left uh, as a consequence of the attack, showing journalists remains of those weapons. However, they stopped short of directly accusing Iran of launching the assault. Saudi military spokesmen uh, came from say that the attack came from the north without saying specifically where it originated. Iraq and Iran are to the north of Saudi Arabia across the Persian Gulf. The attack could not have originated from Yemen. He went on to say, disputing the claim by Yemen's Iranian-backed Houthi rebels, that they launched the weapons. Saudi officials said the cruise missiles, which had what appeared to be a jet engine attached to it, was a land attack cruise missile that failed to explode. Almost certainly, it's Iranian-backed. The Prince Khalid bin Bandar, Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the United Kingdom, told the BBC, we were trying not to react too quickly because the last thing we need is more conflict in the region. Well, that, of course, is the last thing we all need. Well, of the election in Israel, Bibi on the brink, falls short of majority, cancels trip to U.N., winning could be the only way to avoid prosecution, gamble pays off for Lieberman, who is a whole nother f- figure in all of this, who becomes kingmaker, cliffhanger leaves Israel in mess, election turnout 69.4%, Arabs game new voice, still deadlocked. Results not yet conclusive. Well, as has become customary in Israel, voters have gone to the polls to choose government, but may have to wait for days or even weeks to see what it looks like and who will lead it. Well, after the country's second election in five months, veteran Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud and the opposition Blue and White parties were neck and neck as official results were coming in today, with neither appearing to have a clear route to victory. That's because, as was never in doubt, neither of the two parties are anywhere close to getting the 61 seats needed in the 120-member Knesset to govern alone. With results still coming, both appear set to win around 32 seats each. Earlier exit polls had placed the Likud marginally ahead. That's uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's party. So, as usual, in Israeli politics, their leaders, Netanyahu and former Israeli Defense Forces Chief of Staff Ben Gantz, will each examine their chances of cobbling together a viable coalition. 
Netanyahu's inability to do so after elections last April led to the election yesterday, the replay, if you will. Both he and Gantz predicted overnight that they would be the one to form the next government. Gantz told supporters at his party's Tel Aviv headquarters he had already spoken to some potential coalition partners on the left and intended to speak to everyone in a bid to build a national unity government. But Netanyahu, who also spoke in Tel Aviv, said that Israel needs a strong, stable and Zionist government, one that does not depend on Arab anti-Zionist. Zionist parties that deny Israel's very existence as a Jewish and democratic state and that glorify terrorists who murder Israeli soldiers and citizens. The state of Israel is at an historic juncture ahead of the great security and diplomatic challenges and opportunities, he said, pointing to President Trump's Mideast peace efforts and the threats posed by Iran. Well, despite his optimism, the country's longest serving prime minister, who's seeking a fifth term, looks vulnerable since the party's offering the most obvious route to a majority is led by a former ally who is now a rival. Avigdor Lieberman, a former foreign and defense minister in Netanyahu-led governments, looks set Wednesday to hold the balance of power with his secular nationalist uh, party. Israel, our home is the name of it in um, uh, the language in Hebrew, on track to take nine seats. Of the remaining parties, those likely to go with Netanyahu in a center-right block include the ultra-Orthodox Shahs, with an estimated nine seats based on incomplete official results and exit polls, United Torah Judaism with eight, and former Justice Minister uh, Shekhed's right-wing Yamina, seven. Well, likely uh, coalition partners for Gantz and White, um, Gantz's Blue and White Party, on the other hand, are the Israeli-Arab joint list, which exit polls gave 12 seats, along, although official results thus far do not bear that out. Center-left Labor Gesher with six, and left-wing Democratic Union with five. Neither Netanyahu nor Gantz, therefore, look able to build a majority coalition without turning to um, Yisrael Binyetu. Uh, this makes Lieberman, who champions secular issues like commerce and public transportation on the Jewish Sabbath, the potential kingmaker and not for the first time. Lieberman has already made clear that he envisages a broad national unity coalition uh, comprising rather his party, Blue and White and Likud. But as Gantz has said, he won't join a coalition featuring Netanyahu. Lieberman's envisaged three-way coalition would only work if Netanyahu stands down. Israelis and the many Americans interested in the nation's most important ally in the Middle East could have a very long wait. And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is uh, desperate to translate the British public's June 2016 vote to leave the European Union into concrete Brexit, June of 2016. But the real issue is far older and more important with whether 52 percent of of, uh, Britain finally become understandably aggrieved by the increasingly anti-democratic and German-controlled European Union. England is an island, of course. Historically, politically and linguistically, it was never permanently or fully integrated into European culture and traditions. The story of Britain was mostly been uh, conflict with France, with Germany and Spain. Uh, the preeminence of the Royal Navy and the, the uh, defiant spirit of its sea lords ensured that uh, European dictators from Napoleon to Hitler could never set foot on British soil. As British Admiral John Jervis reassured his superiors back in 1801 with rumors of an impending Napoleonic invasion, 
I do not say, my lords, that the French will not come. I say only they will not come by sea. Well, British sea power, imperialism, parliamentary government, majority Protestant religion set it apart from its European neighbors, and not just because of its geographic location. The 18th century British and Scottish Enlightenment of Edmund Burke, David Hume, John Locke, Adam Smith emphasized individualism, freedom and liberty far more than the government enforced equality of result that was forced uh, rather favored by French Enlightenment thinkers such as Jean uh, Jacques Rousseau. It's no accident that the American Revolution was founded on the idea of individual freedom and liberty, unlike the later French Revolution's violent effort to redistribute income and deprive enemies of the people of their rights to even their lives. Well, France produced Napoleon. Italy had Mussolini. Germany gave the world Hitler. It's difficult to find in British history a comparable dictatorial figure who sought continental domination. The British, of course, were often no saints. They controlled their global empire by both persuasion and brutal force. But even British imperialism was of a different sort than Belgium, French, German, Portuguese or Spanish colonialism. Former British colonies, America, Australia, Canada, India and New Zealand have long been democratic, while much of Latin America, to take one example, has not until recently. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 21 minutes after 5 o'clock. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Zeroes again. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Myron Ebel. He is the director of the Center for Energy and Environment at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. We'll look at 50 years of climate disaster predictions and whether or not they came true. Talking about Britain's moment of truth and the distinction between Britain and the rest of Europe. In World War II, the British lost nearly a million soldiers trying to save France and and, uh, Belgium in World War I should say in World War One. In World War Two, England was the only nation to fight the Axis for the entirety of the war, from September of thirty-nine to September of forty-five. The only Allied power to fight the Axis completely alone for about a year, from mid nineteen forty to forty-one, and the only major Allied power to have gone to war without having been directly attacked. It came to the aid of its ally Poland. Historically, Britain is, uh, has looked more upon the seas and the New World than eastward to Europe in that transatlantic sense, a Canadian or American typically had more in common with an Englander than did a German or a Greek. Over the last 30 years, the British nearly forgot that fact as they merged into the European Union, pledged to adopt European values as in a shared trajectory of supposed utopia to the degree that England remained somewhat suspicious of EU um, uh, policy by rejecting the uh, euro and not embracing European socialism. The country thrived. But when Britain Followed the German example of open borders, reversed the market reforms of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, adopted the pacifism and energy uh, uh, policy of the EU, it stagnated. Johnson's effort as the new prime minister ostensibly are to carry out the will of the British people as voiced in 2016 against the wishes of the European Union apparatus and most of the British establishment. It is an uphill climb. But after hundreds of years of rugged independence, the question is, will Britain finally merge into Europe or will it retain its singular culture and grow closer to the English-speaking countries it once founded? which are doing better than most of the members of the increasingly regulated and anti-democratic European Union. Europe is alarmingly unarmed. Most NATO members refuse to make their promised investment in defense. Negative interest rates are becoming normal in Europe. Unemployment remains high in tightly regulated labor markets. Southern European countries can never fully repay their loans from German banks. The dissident 
uh, Visegard group comp- comprised of the Czech Republic, Hungary, uh, Poland and Slovakia. They're seeking to create a mini alliance inside the EU that promotes security, secure borders, legal immigration only, nuclear power and traditional values and Christianity. Britain has a last chance to re-embrace the free market democratic world that it once helped to create and distance itself from the creeping statism it once opposed. And only time will tell whether or not uh, that is ultimately uh, the outcome or whether or not the Prime Minister Johnson can reach that goal. Well, the Christian Medical and Dental Association, the nation's largest faith-based association of health professionals, today released the findings of a national survey that showed that conscience-protecting laws and regulations help protect patient access to health care while addressing rampant discrimination against faith-based health professionals. Now, the survey, a nationwide poll of faith-based health professionals conducted by Heart and Mind Strategies, LLC, found that 91% said that they would have to stop practicing medicine altogether rather than be forced to violate their conscience. The finding holds significant implications for millions of patients, especially the poor and those in underserved regions who depend upon faith-based health facilities and professionals for their care. The survey of faith-based health professionals also found that virtually all care for patients, regardless of sexual orientation, gender identification, or family makeup, with sensitivity and compassion, even when I cannot validate their choices. The finding puts the lie to the charge that somehow conscience protections will result in whole classes of patients being denied care. Faith-based health professionals actually seek out and serve marginalized patients to provide compassionate care, explained the emeritus Dr. David Stevens. All we ask is we serve in the... um, is that the government not intrude into the physician-patient relationship by dictating that we must do controversial procedures and prescriptions that counter our best medical judgment or religious beliefs. Well, they are currently representing, a CMDA is currently represented by the Beckett Law Firm in two related cases, um, which uh, we'll cover on another occasion. But this is a survey by the Christian Medical and Dental Association on whether or not conscience protections, uh, removing them will have an impact on medical care. Well, when would you like to schedule your knee replacement surgery? Ask an American doctor before leaving for Ireland. So says uh, a patient. Cal Thomas writes that I gave him a date that works for me. I'm calling it the result of an old basketball injury, not advancing age. His office scheduled it for that date. Contrast this with a headline in the Irish independent newspaper. Surgery delays are cheating elderly out of precious time. While I'm not ready to claim elderly status, again, this is Cal Thomas, the story is a preview of what could happen in the U.S. if enough of us buy into the notion that government knows best when it comes to our health and longevity. The head of the Irish Medical Association, Dr. Prodreg McGrary, is uh, quoted as saying that older people are frequently waiting well over two years just to see a specialist before being consigned to another waiting list for surgery. Ponder that for a moment. How would you react um, should your current doctor, assuming you are allowed to keep him or her, tell you to get in line and wait until further notice? McGrary says that he has seen patients deteriorate while waiting for surgery and many return to their general practitioner who gives them medication which can affect their health in other ways. And Ireland isn't even a part of Britain's National Health Service. They've got their own system, part public, the health service executive, and part private option. It's the public system wherein the problem lies. The most recent figures examined by the newspaper found 564,829 patients in the queue to see a specialist and another 68,807 patients waiting to have surgery. Ireland's population is less than 5 million 
population of the United States is just over 329 million. If tiny Ireland can't make it work, what makes so many of our politicians think it will work here? Well, across the Irish Sea, the UK has its own horror stories about health care run by government. Canadians can afford uh, can afford it off of um, I should say Canadians who can afford it often come to the United States rather than wait for their government to approve and schedule their surgery. Adding to the dysfunction is the overregulated Irish system in which people don't want to become doctors or serve in other health care capacities. Low pay is only one reason. According to The Independent, there are 527 vacancies for hospital specialists, as well as a pay gap between newly recruited consultants and longer serving colleagues. The question endures with governments doing so few things efficiently and at at, uh, reasonable cost, why do so many turn to it first? Government has become its own type of religious cult. No matter the evidence, to the contrary, people continue to place their faith in it. People who see government as the cure-all don't always practice what they preach. We've seen that with some environmental activists who promote certain forms of transportation and alternatives to to fossil fuels, along with more restrictive gun laws, while transporting themselves on gas-guzzling private jets and in SUVs accompanied by armed guards. One of the latest examples of such hypocrisy is the aging rock star Mick Jagger, who, as a British citizen has access to his country's National Health Service. Jagger apparently uh, believes the National Health Service is for little people, as the late hotel magnate uh, Leona Helmsley was uh, said about income taxes. When Jagger needed a heart valve replacement, he didn't wait in line like so many others in Britain. He had his surgery in the United States. After recovering, he added criticism of President Donald Trump to his concerts, uh, citing specifically the current administration's policy on the environment and immigration. How's that for gratitude? Well, if I had to choose between the National Health Service and the American Health Service, I'd stick with the system if the government allows where appointments can be made and kept. And the only wait is for the doctor outer office. Cal Thomas, when government runs health care. Well, a doctor who ordered family members to physically restrain a woman who was fighting for her life during a physician assisted suicide has been Well, exonerated. Controversy erupted in January of 2017 when it became known that a doctor had administered an assisted suicide for a patient suffering Alzheimer's disease. After adding a sedative to the patient's coffee to make her drowsy, the doctor then began injecting a lethal dose of drugs into her IV. The uh, woman was uh, forcibly held by family members. Uh, until she died. In a ruling last week, a court in The Hague, in the Netherlands, ruled that the declaration the patient made four years earlier expressing the desire uh, to die had not been broken, uh, had not broken, rather the desire to live had not been broken uh, through the Dutch euthanasia laws. The doctor also had been previously cleared by a Dutch government panel. We conclude that all requirements of the euthanasia legislation had been met. Therefore, the suspect is acquitted of all charges. She had Alzheimer's. She wanted to live. They ended her life. But of course, that could never happen here. 31 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Myron Ebel, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the United Nations is convening a climate action summit next week, and climate activist Greta Thunberg is on Capitol Hill this week telling lawmakers what they must do soon. While the, the data from NASA and other top research agencies confirms that global temperatures are indeed rising, there's a newly compiled retrospective that indicates the doomsday rhetoric is perhaps more overheated. Well, the Competitive Enterprise Institute has put together a lengthy compilation of uh, apocalyptic predictions dating back decades that, well, 
didn't come to pass. Timed as uh, Democratic presidential candidates and climate activists uh, refocus their attention on the issue. The dire uh, predictions uh, often repeated in the media warn of a variety of impending disasters if the world fails to act on climate change. Famine, drought and ice age, even uh, disappearing nations. Well, here to talk with us about that is Myron Ebel. He is the director of the Center for Energy and Environment at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Georgine. Well, once again, we're hearing the dire predictions of what's going to happen if we don't act in some very dramatic ways. For those who are younger uh, listeners, they may not be aware of the uh, history that began in the 1960s of dire predictions that were going to happen if we didn't do this or that. Can you start us at the beginning in the 1960s and how this all began? Well, you know, there have been predictions of doom, um, uh, impending doom, probably going back thousands of years. But uh, the current crop starts really in the late 1960s. And I was a a teenager growing up in Baker City then, and I I sort of noticed it, even though I was a long ways away from anywhere. Uh, So in 1968, Paul Ehrlich uh, published, uh, he was a young uh, population biologist at Stanford, and he published his Population Bomb, which was the first great eco-apocalyptic uh, treatise, I suppose. Um, and in 1967, for example, he said, by 1975, we're going to have famine, a uh, global famine. Uh, he said uh, throughout the late 60s and early 70s, we're, we're j- just around the corner. We're going to be running out of water. We're going to be running out of food. And we'll have, um, uh, you know, disaster after disaster. So that's that's kind of where it started. And a lot of people in, in the late 60s were in that sort of end-of-the-world mood, and they started chiming in. And then the next step was we got global cooling in the 19, early 1970s, and everybody was predicting a new ice age or a new little ice age or, you know, we're going to run out of food because the growing season will be too short. And it uh, continues from there. You've compiled quite an impressive list of articles that uh, feature some of these dire predictions that were going to happen. A few of them in 1989, uh, the Associated Press headline from uh, from that period, rising seas could obliterate nations, uh, UN officials. Um, uh, have, are saying the article detailed uh, United Nations environmental official warning that entire nations would be eliminated if the world failed to reverse warming by the year 2000. Yes. Well, my favorite one of those that we have in our, our list, there are, there are a bunch of them, but uh, Jim Hansen, the famous uh, climate scientist and, and global warming alarmist who uh, used to head the uh, NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies, which is a small uh, research shop headquartered at Columbia University on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, a journalist asked him in the late 1980s, well, uh, they were looking out the window at Columbia University, and what will what will be different in in 20 years? And he said, well, for one thing, the 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 road in front of us here will be underwater, uh, and so that's the kind of thing that uh, these people have been spouting now for decades. The kind of just rubbishy predictions uh, to try to scare us into whatever their agenda happens to be. And what were these predictions based on? I mean, today we have computer models that aren't always as helpful as they one might hope, but what did they base their predictions on in the earlier days? Well, you know, there there's a certain class of, of uh, scientists who um, want to 
gain notoriety uh, and become famous or and or uh, promote their agenda. And so I think a lot of this these predictions just is just based on um, uh, ambition and and political calculation. There isn't much actual uh, evidence, uh, scientific evidence. And in fact, one of the people that we do quote in the, this list of, of news clips, uh, Stephen Schneider, who uh, was also ended his career, I think, at Stanford. Um, he said at one point, he said, you know, as scientists who want to, you know, help save the world, and he was one of the first people on the global cooling uh, bandwagon back in the early 70s, and then later he switched and, and uh, joined the global warming bandwagon. But Stephen Schneider said something, and I'm paraphrasing here. Well, as scientists who really want to change the world, we have to make a, ju a personal judgment about how much uh, we need to exaggerate to get people to um, to do things, to 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 start moving in in our direction and promoting what what we think is the you know the good thing that will save the world. So I mean, I think there's, I think a lot of these people who make these predictions are um, are aware that they're um, that they're rubbish. I, I think some of the politicians that we also quote in this are uh, more naive. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think when I think some of them when they say we've only got you know Representative Alexandria Ocasio Cortez saying, you know, she's promoting the Green New Deal. She said, you know, Will, we've only got 12 years to save the world. I think she may actually believe it. Um, so, you know, I think there's there's a wide variety of, of personal motivations involved in, in making these predictions. There's a lot of attention given to the predictions once they're made. The media dutifully carries them to the public right. without challenge. But when these uh, dates, these periods have come to an end, there's very little attention given to the fact that they didn't produce the kind of outcome. We've had rising seas. We've had the um, the uh, mm -hmm. new ice age and so on. There's not much attention given to the failure of these predictions to actually come to pass. Yeah, and there's that's absolutely right. And uh, there's also added to that a kind of a tendency to even go back and defend these some of these predictions. Uh, or even to keep repeating them when they've been disproved. For example, I keep reading the environmentalists talking about how the polar bears are disappearing. Well, you know, in, 19, in the 1950s, there were about 5,000 polar bears. Today, there are between 25 and 30,000 polar bears. That doesn't have anything to do with global warming or global cooling. It mostly has to do with uh, limiting hunting up in the, in the Arctic. But the fact is that the polar bears are not under threat, and yet we keep hearing it over and over and over again. So I, I think, uh, you know, I don't know what to say about the mainstream media echo chamber, except that I, you know, I've learned not to believe a lot of what I read in the, in the papers and here on television. Well, the language has since changed to um, climate change, which doesn't predict up or down, but just that the climate is changing, which has always been a, a fact. The degree to which it changes and the dire predictions that are sometimes associated with it have, have changed. Are computer models more reliable than, say, in the 60s and 70s when we were hearing about uh, the famine and the need for population control and so on was, were popularized? Uh, no, the computer models, they keep claiming that the computer models uh, that predict future climate future temperatures, uh, that they're, they're better and better. But in fact, um, the, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the third assessment report in 2001, 
had a chapter on how to on improving our understanding of climate, and it admitted in the report it said since since the climate is a nonlinear chaotic system, models cannot predict future states of the climate. That's not a that's not qualified like they're going to get better. That's a categorical statement. Uh, nonlinear chaotic systems cannot be modeled. So. Uh, so these computer models can do all kinds of interesting things, but they can't predict the future. And yet the scientific community, the global warming activists in the scientific community, continue to promote the models and, and belief in the models. So, you know, it's all junk. You can't, you can't believe any of it. In releasing this um, a compilation of predictions over a 50-year period, what do you hope that will do to influence what's going to happen at the United Nations Climate Action Summit and people's understanding of um, the fact that temperatures are increasing and, and what kind of response we, we should have based on what we actually know? Georgine, it's not going to do anything to affect the UN Climate Summit or the climate strike this Friday or any of these other true believers, but I, we hope that it will give uh, rational, normal Americans uh, some evidence and confidence when they say, you know, I'm just not a big believer in, in global warming catastrophe. Uh, I'm not. I don't. I don't think we have a climate crisis. I think. So I think we're 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 helping we're helping you know reasonable people. Not we're not going to affect the the activists or the world leaders gathered at the UN summit on Monday. However, I should say uh, here's where the Trump administration is on the UN climate summit. I've been told that they are sending a career diplomat from the State Department to rep, represent the United States. Uh, at the UN Action uh, Climate Action Summit in New York City on Monday, uh, uh, that person will not be speaking, and instead, President Trump is going to New York on Monday to give a major speech to the UN General Assembly at the same time that they're meeting in the UN building with uh, with the climate powwow, and his speech is going to be on international religious liberty. So I think that should give us some confidence hmm. about where the Trump administration is on this. Myron Ebel, thank you so much for talking with us today. Appreciate it. Thanks, for, Jean. Good to hear you. You too. Again, Myron Ebel is the director of the Center for Energy and Environment at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, by the way, I'm looking forward to a conversation with the retired judge Tom Cole. He is the co-founder of Paid in Full. This is a ministry to the prison population here in the state of Oregon. And we're going to get an update on the progress of their plan to establish a, a seminary-type education in connection with Corbin University at uh, the o- Oregon State uh, Penitentiary. We'll get an update and where their fundraising is going as well. It's really very exciting. So I'm looking forward to a conversation with Judge Cole uh, that's coming up tomorrow on the program. He'll be live and in studio. Well, stepping away just a moment from the more serious side of the news, I wanted to mention that today happens to be National Cheeseburger Day. And what kind of host would I be if I were to let the day come and go without making mention of the fact that today, September 18th, is uh, National Cheeseburger Day. Now, if you can eat a three-pound cheeseburger in an hour you may be well on your way to a $20 gift card at Fuddruckers. Uh, you'll need to um, 
polish off a pound of fries along with that. So keep that in mind. But because it's National Cheeseburger Day, you have the opportunity. Uh, well, at um, America's favorite online destination to celebrate quirky holidays, National Today, I want you to know that just part of the fun surrounding National Cheeseburger Day uh, to prove that they've uh, put together a definitive guide on one of the top food days of the calendar, here are some things you might want to consider. Family-friendly deals on the American Food Classic at restaurants like White Castle, Black Angus, Red Robin, uh, and others uh, can be found at that website. A list is uh, growing at uh, National Cheeseburger Day approaches, and more burger deals are being announced daily. So go to the website, and again, they're... Um, what is it? National Today. You can find out where you can get a great deal on a cheeseburger. And they put out a, na- a nationwide call for alternative original cheeseburger ideas. For example, macaroni and cheese on the burger. Uh, included in the post are bloggers, food writers, restaurant owners, chefs from around the country, each with a distinct uh, take on an American classic, which, you know, if you have too distinct a take on a, the American classic, it becomes something else. But anyway... Um, they have answers to your most pressing cheeseburger questions. Does anybody really have pressing questions on cheeseburgers? Where did cheeseburgers originate? You can find that there. And what was the inspiration for Jimmy Buffett's 1978 pop hit, Cheeseburger in Paradise? I have no idea. All of that um, on the holiday, if you can call it such, National Cheeseburger Day, which happens to be today. Happy National Cheeseburger Day. And again, you can go to National Today to find out where you can uh, find some great deals on cheeseburgers. I think Red Robin was on that list. But also Fuddruckers, apparently, you might want to check your local uh, restaurant, is offering $20 gift cards for those who can eat a three-pound cheeseburger in an hour along with a pound of fries. Because hamburgers and fries go together. It's like peanut butter and jelly. One without the other is just missing something of great importance. So now you know. Uh, tomorrow on the program, looking forward to a conversation with uh, retired Judge Tom Cole. He is the co-founder of Paid in Full. This is a ministry that was established by Judge uh, Cole, along with a uh, pastor from Hillsborough uh, Calvary Chapel, both of whom lost daughters to violent crime, who decided to focus their attention and energy uh, toward those who perpetrate these kinds of crimes, those who are incarcerated, and their stories are just remarkable in and of themselves. And we may uh, get into that a little bit in my conversation with Judge uh, Cole tomorrow. But this ministry is uh, designed to minister to prisoners and to provide them with a uh, seminary level education on on scripture so that they can become pastors and elders, if you will, within the prison system. Now, this is an innovation that began uh, on the east coast of the country And it's worked extremely well. In fact, there are facilities uh, that were considered the most violent in the country who have been completely transformed. And for some of these individuals who are trained, they then go to other locations where they can minister. They will be incarcerated, but they are ministries within uh, the penal system. So it's a remarkable um, story. It's a remarkable ministry. And the state of Oregon is on the verge of establishing a similar program right here in our state And uh, they've been fundraising and a facility was made available to them. Corbin University has made itself available to them to provide uh, the resources that they will need. And so it's very exciting to consider uh, what's happening there. So we'll talk with Judge Cole tomorrow. And then on Friday, I'm looking forward to making my way to the coast. I'm speaking at a retreat for my sisters at Branches Church and looking forward to just uh, hanging out around God's word with 
uh, my sisters from the Scapoose area. So we're going to share with you the best of the Georgine Rice Show uh, on the program. So um, I'm not even sure what that content will be just yet, but um, we'll... We'll uh, share that with you on Friday. Well, in the wake of the latest controversial New York Times story, many are saying that the mainstream media is in big trouble. The co-host of The View, Megan McCain, on Tuesday confronted a pair of New York Times reporters who blamed gray lady editors for botching a now revised story accusing the Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh of sexual misconduct. You guys left out a key detail, she said during the program, referring to the paper, leaving out the tidbit that the alleged victim doesn't remember the incident. I think this is sort of ground zero for why so many people mistrust the media, she said at the time. While she and other conservative pundits often use um, hyperbole to rip the mainstream media, she appears to be correct when it comes to people not trusting the mainstream media. A recent Gallup poll surveyed the confidence adults had in newspapers and television news, um, and the results were staggering. According to this poll, 48% of people have either very little or no confidence in television news compared with only 18% in 1930, or excuse me, 1993. Confidence in newspapers is also dipping if people are still reading newspapers, and that number has declined dramatically. 39% say they have very little or no confidence in newspapers in 2019 compared to only 17% as recently as 2003. DePaul University professor Jeffrey McCall says that the decline in trust in the media is troubling because a functioning republic requires citizens who are informed and have sufficient, accurate news on which to base self-governance decisions. Today, the media has lost sight of its obligation and instead too often fills the news holes with sensational, poorly sourced and and or agenda-driven content. Well, that's true with communication in general, if you consider uh, social media as well. Well, news consumers have enough sense to recognize these flaws and are responding, as you would expect, by tuning out the news or at least being skeptical of the content that they do read. Well, a Columbia Journalism Review poll conducted earlier this year found that a whopping 60 percent of respondents believe reporters get paid by their sources sometimes or very often. And 41 percent are less likely to believe a story with anonymous sources. The study indicated that responders have less confidence in the people running the press than other polarizing institutions, including universities, the Supreme Court, the executive branch and Congress. Regardless of age, gender, employment, or highest level of education, about half have little trust in the press. Randy Hall from Newsbusters wrote when examining the study, well, uh, the CJR also, this is the Columbia Journalism Review, also determined that 90% of Republicans believe the media has a partisan bias. Another 2019 poll, rather, this one conducted by Morning Consult and Hollywood Reporter, found that Republicans are roughly 20 points less likely to say the New York Times and CNN are credible news outlets than they were in 2016. Some leaders in the news industry tend to blame Trump's media bashing as the reason for this decline in the media's trust. But the trend has been ongoing for 15 to 20 years, well before Trump came down the escalator to begin his presidential campaign. Nobody expects the media to be perfect or 100 percent accurate, but obvious and high profile lapses in professional judgment as we uh, have seen in the New York Times and other outlets, uh, remind the public that the news industry is in chaos. Nobody expects um, uh, it to improve anytime soon either, which is not a very encouraging development. They would rather, um, well, let's just leave it at that. Um, uh, How the media responds remains to be seen, but they clearly are in some semblance of trouble. 
Well, once again, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with retired Judge Tom Cole, our subject paid in full. And on Friday, the best of the Georgine Rice Show. So I hope you will join us for that. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And happy National Cheeseburger Day. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.